0: Amen. Welcome, everyone. I want to start off by speaking about last night. Wasn't last night amazing? Um, and I just want to thank everybody again, everyone who participated, everyone who was present. We had our a talent show, which is going to become an annual event. Um, so tell your friends, and next time, I'm sure we can have even double the number of people. Um, I'm amazed always at God, just the way He provides people. And what was so wonderful last night was to just see God glorified through your your gifts and talents. (coughs) Um, So all glory to God. As much as I appreciated each of you in front here, um, I just want to thank God. So why don't we clap? Let's thank God and thank everybody who was here as well. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Special thanks to David and Marley. I'm not sure if they are here at the moment. Uh, who put it all together. So please, um, yeah, just show gratitude as well to them and to one another. Okay, so this today is going to be a little bit different. Um, as you can see, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts, and we're going to pause today on Acts chapter 16. And just to show you what's been going on so far in the story, I don't know about you, but I like to understand geographical context, don't you? You sort of hear these you know, names of towns, but to actually imagine and picture where they are is important. So this is just part of a a map. Um, We are now in the, not quite the middle, but we are well into Paul's second missionary journey. To the right of this map, somewhere down here is Antioch. So Paul and his companions have left Antioch. They have gone inland. Previously on his first missionary journey they went out by sea, now they go inland, and we saw a few weeks ago how amazing God is, how they were they were led more than led, they were guided and very firmly guided by the Holy Spirit which route they should take. So they avoided um, Asia, they skirted along the north here, led by the Spirit, and when they came to this place called Troas, um, there was Paul Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. And he basically said, Paul, come over, come across. And this was a major step forward in taking the gospel out, because this was a step into Europe. This is modern-day Greece. Now, the names here are names of provinces of Rome, Asian provinces. Oh, sorry, um, Asia is a province. Macedonia is a, a name given to that Roman province. Okay, so they landed in Macedonia and Philippi. And then for the last two weeks, we learned about three amazing conversion stories. Guys, remember? Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. And the lesson that Luke wants us to hear from recounting those stories in quick succession is that God's salvation is for all. Those three people represent very different nationalities, genders, and socioeconomic conditions. So Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, the main theme, the main thing that Luke wants to get across to us to the Christians back then, and to us, is that God's salvation is for all, all people. Okay, so that's where we stopped uh, last week with Lubuyu uh, yeah, telling us about preaching on, rather, the, the Philippian jailer. And in the um, weeks to come, we will follow how Paul and his companions make their way down uh, to Athens. And that's about as far as we're going to get this year. And then, just to give you a heads up, there's some exciting plans we have as a church for uh, November and December. We're going to have some special events, some special services, and equipping workshops, including a service led by the preteens. That's going to be exciting. Yes. Amen. Not quite led by the preteens, but no, anyway, the focus is going to be on the preteens. I don't think you know the preteens are ready to preach just yet. Okay, but the, they are going to be very involved in the service. Okay, we are a Church of all nations and all generations, so we like to involve everybody. Um, and then also we have an outdoor service in December leading up to our Christmas service. So, uh, the program will be available next week, but I just want to give you a heads up. Okay. So, what we're going to do today is actually, we have a, we have a guest speaker today. We have an international guest speaker. He's unfortunately not here in person, but it is Ed Anton. Ed Anton is a teacher in our movement. He, He's a teacher and an evangelist at the Hampton Roads Church of Christ in the States, in the, um, I think it's in Virginia. It's, 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 it's on the East Coast. So if you kind of imagine a map of America, sort of midway up the East Coast, uh, is a town called Hampton Road, and Ed Anton is the teacher and evangelist there. Um, I'm in touch with him every now and again. He's a great teacher. He, in fact, coordinates in our movement the teacher service team. Okay, our movement doesn't have one person in charge. We don't believe in that. The responsibilities are shared. There are various service teams, including one around teaching. So Ed Anton is um, a highly respected and I love the guy. He's a great teacher. And so with his permission and he feels very encouraged, he, he also just says, now please give my, yeah, just my greetings to the PE Church. And uh, he is encouraged that we will actually show one of his lessons today. Uh, They've they've also done an extended uh, series on on Acts. I chose this lesson because it's a good time to pause and really get God's grace. Okay, now, just to remind you also that way back, a couple of months back, um, we saw how there was this big council in Jerusalem. Remember that? There were tensions in the church. The Jews wanted the Gentiles to first become Jews before they could become Christians. In other words, follow the law, go through the whole circumcision thing. And it was a big uh, council and the Holy Spirit moved. And what came out of that council was a letter from the church leaders that said, no, you know, salvation is by grace alone. It is not through obeying the works of the law. Okay. And then there was a compromise. They said, man, Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised, but please just consider your Jewish, you know, Christian friends and brothers and sisters and lean towards them a little bit when it comes to certain ways of life. Okay, But the point was that they were given a letter, and let's remember that Luke doesn't always mention it, but as, Luke, as Paul and his companions are moving through all of these towns, they will be reading out the letter. And the letter is a very encouraging letter, and it basically the summary is that salvation is by grace alone. Now this word grace, I don't think we in our society and in this age Fully get the meaning of grace. Okay. And when I, you know, heard this lesson and studied it out, it, there, there was, there was a lot of new stuff for me. I almost said even, but well, I'm not, I'm not special. Okay. I'm for, I'm learning always and I learned a lot about God's grace through this lesson. Okay. So that's what it's about. And it's a logical sort of leading to both communion and contribution as you will see. So without further ado, can we please have the lights down? It's a 40 minute lesson, 41 minutes. We're going to start it, 37 minutes, we're going to start it into the uh, service per se, because these guys actually record the entire church service. So we're just going to jump in at the 37 minute mark where Ed Anton starts to speak about, uh, not the, the passages before this, but then focusing on Philippi and how this word grace would have been Uh, understood and accepted by the Christians in Philippi. Okay.
1: We start to head into some places where the word grace actually informs us quite a bit about this whole idea of grace. And the title of the sermon today is, Got Grace? And the reason why, it's because how many times have any of us, how many times have you had discussions with other people that have said, and maybe you've said it yourself, You know, I I know we have the grace of God, but I'm not sure how it's really meant to motivate me. I'm not really sure the supposed power of this greatest of all concepts. How this is meant to be so much more motivating than just, let's say, obedience and performance is is meant to be motivating. And a big part of it is because we're not hearing just the simple word grace or kades, which is the, the word that they would have heard in the New Testament we're not hearing that word through the ears of the original audience. And while this is not a kind of a traditional exposition of this, this portion of scriptures, it is, I think, a very important being able to put yourself in the time and place of Paul's hearers as he makes his way out of Asia, hearing the Macedonian call, the vision to come on over into Europe, into Greece, which he's about to do in this very passage, and for those hearers in those places to understand grace in the way that was, was heard by them. So we're going to going to take a look at this, this Macedonian call. And, and by the way, this was um, a bunch of us. Uh, Jeff and Kelly are in that picture. Deb and I are in that picture too, I think. Uh, where we were kind of on the road that Paul and Luke and Silas are, are all going to travel as they make their way by boat from Troas... Over into Macedonia, into into Greece, and and as we get on that road, you then start to make your way down the most famous of all Roman roads, the Ignatian Way, uh, and along the Ignatian Way, it then makes its way through all the next places that we're going to look at in the Book of Acts. I mean, all, all these next spots—Philippi, uh, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea—all of these places are all along the road that leads right to Rome. And and as we study all of this, it'll be kind of important to realize that God set all of this up pretty sweetly. But that's that's another lesson. Anyway, let's read verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, which is in Galatia, and had not continued with them in the work. So this is interesting. They've just finished a Council on Unity, and in that Council on Unity, they have a message of unity to bring to all of the churches to greatly encourage their souls about the unified message of the gospel of grace. And right after that, you've got to know that this has got to be real, or else why would they include it? Right. Why would this awkward thing occur right after the high point of unity in the book of Acts? And, and the very next thing that is said, And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, kind of making his way back to all of these places where he just preached, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well, spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So, and this is interesting since the letter and the council was all about whether you should be circumcised or not, uh, and the conclusion was, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And and here's Timothy, and the men will actually have our lesson on this on Tuesday night. Um, Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I would imagine if you're Timothy, and this is about to happen to you, and you're 17 years old, about to be circumcised, you're probably saying to Paul, but But Paul... We're carrying the letter. Like, here's the letter. Just, come on, just read it one more time. Please. Just one more time, Paul, please. Just, just read the part about, you know, circumcision, not necessary. Oh, you really think we got to do this thing? And, and so they do. But again, we're not going to focus on that right now. It's just unbelievable that, that the Bible places these things one after another. Again, if this were some sort of a, um, uh, oh, let's say, carefully curated myth... There's no way it would go down like this. Why is this included? Because it happened. Because it's truth. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They're moving through modern-day Turkey, and Asia is south of where they're traveling, and Bithynia is north of where they're traveling, but it would have completed the whole landmass. And I would think from a strategic standpoint, if you're Paul and the Companions, it's like, hey, we've got a traction for the gospel here. It's going well throughout Galatia. Let's go north to Bithynia, south to Asia, and let's just cover this whole area, and then we'll move on to wherever it is that we need to go next. So that was their strategy but it's interesting that with strategy they still nonetheless are not just sensitive to but really subordinate to the call of the Holy Spirit. And so when they when they came to the uh when they came to the border verse 7 of Mysia they tried to enter Bithynia but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. I love that it's just phrased the spirit of Jesus that helps me to appreciate the Holy Spirit, the spirit that dwells within us. We got the spirit of Jesus. Amen. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Now, by the way, from Troas on, Paul's, uh, the, the, this letter in the book of Acts starts to say, And we, and we. So it seems like they picked up Luke in Troas, because now he starts talking in the first person. During the night, Paul had a vision of man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, here it starts, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea, sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony. This is the only time that that's mentioned here. Of course, Rome would, would, of course, be a Roman colony. But Philippi is the only one so far that is designated a Roman colony. And because of that, I'm going to go a bit deeper into what people in a Roman colony would have heard when they would have heard a covenant of grace. A Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Macedonia is just simply the northern part of, of Greece. Uh, and in, in further south in Greece, they call it Achaia. We'll be encountering all of these words in the next couple paragraphs and chapters. Uh, but, but just know, they, they moved from Turkey over to northern Greece, and later they're going to go to southern Greece. And then that's that's the geography as we would understand it today. And we stayed there several several days. Uh, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman of the city of Theotira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she persuaded us. So we have this, this travel that occurs over from, from, uh, the, the work that they were doing, really helpful fruitful work, I mean, tearing it up all throughout Galatia. Bithynia and Asia, simple to do, but they hear the call, over they go, and, and as they as they make their way over to there, it says that they had been committed to the grace of God. That That the brothers had committed Paul to the work of the grace of God. And as he is now going to bring the grace of God to all of these places they are going to have to make sense of how it is that the grace of God actually does bring us the depth of motivation where we can live lives that are uncapped, abounding in obedience. Lives that are, are overflowing with eagerness to do more and more all for the sake of Jesus Christ. And there's no better place in our New Testament than landing in Macedonia... Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. This is all of Macedonia. These churches show us what they understood the grace of God to mean, and they show us what living out the grace of God really means. And so as they come in, they, they travel across the, the Ignatian way, right? And, and this will be a lesson a couple weeks from now, as we talk about the way God arranged all of this. But, but, but this was us on our trip as well, and here we are in Philippi. And in Philippi, we're in the middle of the Roman colony. We're in the middle of what's the Agora. And really being able to have some some great insight while we're there of the grace of God that had established this city. Now, the city was established uh, earlier around 160 B.C. But the city was really, really kind of solidified right after the death of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was assassinated in the mid-40s B.C. Right after his assassination, there was pandemonium and civil war. The, maybe the biggest civil war in the history of the Roman Empire. Ju, um, Shakespeare writes about it, right? Back Way back when we studied the Book of Philippi, we talked about this a little bit. But Julius Caesar is, a, is one of the plays by, by Shakespeare. And in that, in that play, he, he names all of these names. They're not just simply literary names. These were like the main contenders for the throne in, in Rome. And it was Brutus and Cassius on one side and Mark Antony and Octavius, who or Augustus Caesar, like the biggest Caesar ever, Augustus Caesar. So you got these guys all squaring off and they have these scuffles, but they don't have them just anywhere. They have them right off of the plane of where we're standing right now. The most famous civil war goes down right here. And around 42 BC, there's a massive war and Mark Antony and Octavius... Prevail. It's kind of like the final four, and they knock out the other two guys. Uh, they, they prevail, and and all of those soldiers would have been likely simply either brought into slavery or vanquished by by execution. Uh, as a matter of fact, both both Octavia, I'm sorry, both Brutus and Cassius, the leader of those two factions, the upstarts who who they also assassinated Julius Caesar. Both of them were killed. Actually, they knew they were about to be killed, so they killed themselves. So the rest of the troops saying, Oh, our leader's dead, and our leader's dead. What what are you going to do to us? And it was almost like they were ready for the worst. And you know what Augustus Caesar did instead? He said, You know what? Instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you land and honor and Roman citizenship, and you can have it in Philippi. This is a place that was grounded on grace. Wow. Now, if it doesn't stop there, 10 years later, Mark Antony and Augustus have, have their own conflict. They have a war as well. And all of Mark Antony's troops are vanquished at the hand of Augustus. Where does that battle occur? They come back to the same place. They have it right here outside of Philippi. These vanquished troops, likewise, will they be killed? No. They also are granted land and citizenship right here. You have an entire city that is founded by the most grateful people you could ever imagine. We deserve death. We should have had our heads cut off. We were rebels. We killed the Caesar. We then went up against the next Caesar. And yet, at the end of the day, that Caesar... That Lord, that Savior, saved us and gave us this place. These were people that understood grace. And now they, they head into, uh, they head in, into, uh, um, this, this city and that's a kind of a depiction of, of grace that I'll talk about in a moment here. But they head, they head into the founding of this city of Philippi, understanding grace. And then Paul, when he swings through all of these cities, all of these northern Macedonian cities uses the word grace quite, quite, quite liberally. And liberally meaning he does it a lot, not like he, he just uses it willy-nilly. Uh, but, but, but he uses the word generously too. And what does it mean? What does this caudis, this, this idea of, of gifting or grace mean to them? Now, the reason why we don't get it necessarily is because we've got an entire modern-day Christendom that has literally done what the Bible says you should never do to grace. And in Jude, there's only one one uh, chapter, but I'm going to read to you from Jude verse 4, where the Bible reads, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. And what have they done? They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. And they turn it into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. In other words, people purporting to be Christians are saying, well, Jesus is not the only way. And on top of that, we are perverting kadis. We're perverting the greatness of the gospel into something that allows you to have a license, 007, license to kill, license to fornicate, license to lie, license to cheat, license for immorality, and and that you can do that. And, and now, that's the exact thing the Bible says not to do, to grace. But modern Christianity, sadly, the best that they can come up with to try to make grace more wonderful, expanded, marvelous, is to tell teary-eyed stories about egregious, willful, deliberate, repeated sins and then say, but grace is like a credit card that I can put it all on that. And and someday Jesus is going to pay the bill. But the blood of Jesus is, is is still big enough for for all of that. It's the it's the storyline of modern day Christianity, and and it's no wonder that everybody's left after that approach to grace of thinking, I don't know if I'm thinking I'm motivated by that grace. I'm thinking I'm going to get one over on God, like if that's the covenant, if that's the deal, that's the biggest loophole I've ever seen. I'm going to exploit that, I'm going to go ahead and live. Licentiously—that's the kind of the word that was used in, in Jude. I'm going to live and do whatever it is I want to do. She looks good. I'm going to go get that. A little alcohol tonight? Why not? Marijuana legal in D.C.? Let's go. Let's make a road trip. Certainly, the grace of God is big enough for all of those things. And and then and then and then, and then right? But 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 that's that's where you could go if Jude four is the way that you, you think of grace. Now, the, the hard part is, that mindset is our mindset today. It's, it's the culture around us. But it was not the mindset there in Philippi. It was not the mindset when they landed in Macedonia. Macedonia, the bigger area, Philippi, kind of a big city there. What did they hear when they heard grace? They didn't hear credit card, put it all on there as much as you want. They didn't hear, sit it on up, doesn't matter how high or how wide or how long or how intentional, how deliberate it is, don't worry, it's, it's the grace of God, really big. Hopefully you don't have too small a view of the grace of God. No, they had a perverted view. I mean, those who say that have a perverted view, but not then. Now, one of the things I thought, well maybe Paul was informed by the Old Testament, because he's the one who really does take in, Coined the term in such a way that it becomes a divine term. And did he actually get influenced by the Old Testament? If you do a word search in the in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, for this word "kaddis," that's that's up there, you'll find it some seventy odd times. But almost all of the times it's used in an idiom. An idiom is just a, a kind of a, a phrase, uh, and you know, it's raining cats and dogs type of thing. But the idiom in the Old Testament was to find favor in their eyes, right? So that that uh, you are you're kind of viewed positively, right? That she, she found favor in my eyes. So that's the old, that's basically the way that it's used almost every time. Only used in an idiom like that, which doesn't inform us about any sort of covenantal conditions or any relationship to the Lord. So it, it wasn't from that that Paul grabbed the idea of Cadis It's not an Old Testament influence. So most scholars speculate that the reason that he used it is because it was so well known to the audiences where he had landed. None better than this audience in Philippi, an entire community of retired soldiers that both knew obedience, knew authority, but they also knew grace. They knew what it was to deserve death. And instead, to get honor and citizenship and land and future and establishment, all courtesy of a benefactor, a gift giver of some sort, a lord that, that would have bestowed that upon them, and so th- this idea of grace is is explained a lot by two fellows that were kind of f- famous in secular society in in, a, in in Rome. One is this guy. Seneca, and the other is Cicero. And, and they, they both lived kind of on either side of, of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think Seneca lived almost the exact same years as Paul. I think he was born in 4 BC and died in 65 AD. A lot of people kind of pegged Paul at those almost exact same dates that, that, that would have been him. So, I mean, very much contemporaries, but famous as you could imagine. They were the insider consultants to the Caesars. And they wrote a lot about grace and they helped to under inform us what people heard when they heard the word grace being being brought about by by Paul. And the 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 image that they would use to the left is actually a light at the Hutchins house. They have two lamps, by the way. And and they have these three ladies that are kind of coordinated together. Uh, also, we took a trip a little while ago over to London for our son's wedding. And that's a statue in Hampton Court, the, the court of Henry VIII. And in that court is a statue of the three graces. And Debbie, Lindsay, and Deb's uh, mom all kind of, kind of re- redid the pose themselves. Um, and, and, it, and it is three obviously beautiful, elegant, live, and lovely, and graceful ladies that are depicted in the idea of the term Caudis. So anybody who heard, in Philippi, anybody who heard... Grace or Cadiz, to them, this comes to mind right away. You don't just think of, I don't know, a covenant or a if this, then that. You think of three lovely ladies dancing in a continuous circle that that is lovely and wonderful and elegant, beautiful in every way. This is what would come to mind. This is ongoing beautiful dance. Why? Because grace did not just have a single effect grace had a triple effect in the ears of everybody who was landing there. So for for example, if you're a soldier ready to be by Caesar, but instead you're given codis, you're given land and honor and citizenship. You you you've been given the hookup of all hookups for, from a citizenship standpoint. You get that instead, that first offer is like the first woman in the dance. And, and that first woman in the dance is the giver. And, and she, she represents the gift that's given to you by someone greater who didn't have to do it, had the means, and, and out of their own free will, not because of anything that you deserve, you indeed are a rebel. You indeed were trying to kill Caesar. You indeed had nothing to merit of, in and of yourselves, but nonetheless, you got a free gift that is so overwhelming that it should cause your jaw to drop. That's the first, the gift given. The second aspect, as as uh, Seneca and Cicero uh, explain this, would then be the second woman in the dance. And the second woman in the dance is very important. And it all has to do with attitude. Because if you've been given so much, God forbid you're ever like, meh, whatever. <laughs> no. The, the, the second aspect of grace, where you do not break the cycle of the dance, is gratitude, that is legendary. A gratitude that, that this is the change of my life. This marks the moment where my life has been finally delivered. I owe everything thanks to this moment in my life. Now interestingly, this second reception of, 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 of Kadis or gratitude is known as Eucharist. Where we get the word Eucharist. Or we we get our word for Thanksgiving, right? So our, when we celebrate the Thanksgiving, uh, where Jesus says this is the cup of Thanksgiving, well that's the that's the idea of of receiving with caddies. Again, the dance of grace in a Roman citizen's ears as Paul comes into town is like, and I think they would all have said, "Oh, I remember, I remember when my when my father relayed that he thought he was heading to his death, and instead he was given honor." the greatest honor of his life. I remember the weeping still as he told the tale. I remember how he would almost fall to the ground again and again every time he told the story of the grace that was given to him and the grace that he experienced in his Eucharist, in his thanksgiving. And then the third aspect of this was your immediate, urgent, earnest desire to be able to reciprocate, the the, the term that the, the people use is reciprocal, proportional, obligatory. Now you think obligatory? Wow, that doesn't sound like grace. Well, in that society, it would have been the most horrific thing ever to be an ingrate, to have received all of that, to be claim Thanksgiving, and and then to not in any way be excited with the rest of your life to make Philippi great, to build a better Philippi. To make this a, a model of what it is to be a Roman colony. right? So you have all of these people here in Philippi that would have been recipients of grace, overflowing with gratitude, grace, and then excited to give back grace. To make Caesar proud of this city. To make this the greatest Roman colony that, that Caesar would have ever established. And that's the dance. And by the way, and then as they do that, Caesar is all the more grateful. He bestows even more gifts. They receive it with even greater generosity. And back and back and forth it goes. So much so that everybody who writes about this says, this was the fabric that held Roman colonies together. This was the fabric that united all of Rome and its widespread, widespread expanse of, of imperial domination. How could it stay together? Grace. It was grace that held it together. And and perhaps there have been experiences in your, in your own life. I know, I I know for me, I've shared this before with you, but there was, you know, some five years ago, our, our beloved Toyota van, uh, reached 331,000 miles. Then we had the experience of having to put her down. With cylinders banging, we got it just to the junkyard. Received our four hundred dollars. Thank you very little. Took the roof rack off and kind of pushed her on in. But then, then we're without a van. We got six kids. I mean, we had six in the family, four kids. Not so easy. And just at that time, where we thought, well, we'll make do. We got a we got a Hyundai Elantra. It's a fine car. We'll make do. But just as, as we thought of that, then friends of ours came and said, so, you know, we're about to, to trade in our, our our Toyota and it's it's also got seven seats. And and rather than trade it in, my wife and I have talked and we decided we want to give it to you guys. And I remember Deb and I were like huh? I'm gonna hum- what? And and you know, and then and then of course all the weirdness, like, no, we can't accept that. Or, you know, we had to we had to actually like kind of get advice from like seventeen layers of people in order to, you know, <laughs> overcome our false humility of Oh, they'll look bad but anyway, finally we like surrender. Okay, I can accept the gift. It was amazing having I mean, that's like a big gift, right? It's like a super awesome, amazing, amazing, amazing gift. Like, I mean, just <laughs> gratitude upon gratitude. Like every time, you know, I open the door, it's like, oh I I was just so grateful. I was like, how oh, can I drive this car to the glory of God? Maybe I didn't think it in that way. How can I drive this God to the glory of the giver of this gift? Any time, though, that I heard that, that our friends... In any way, needed something, or maybe they could be encouraged by something, or something was going on that, that we could perhaps augment in some way. Oh my goodness, we we're like, Hallelujah! Now we know that this will encourage them! So cool that somebody mentioned this to us. I can't wait to go and encourage them. I can't wait to intercede. I can't wait to be a benefit to them in some way. And you know what that did? That just cemented our friendship. Because that dance of grace kept on going. Now, you say, well, but, but what if you, what if you break the circle? Now here's what's interesting. Let me, let me read a quote from Seneca. While initiating a gift was a matter of choice, gratitude was not optional for honorable people, but rather an absolute duty. Seneca writes, the person who intends to be grateful, even while she and he is receiving, should turn his or her thoughts to returning the favor. It's the practice that constitutes the chief bond of human society. This gratitude th- that is then kind of continued, and this is interesting, was never broken. Matter of fact, there was no law in Roman code against breaking the cycle of grace. And you know why? Because it would be the most dishonorable thing that anyone could do. Here, here it says, some would have it appear that there is one for bestowing a benefit, one for receiving it, and a third for returning it. This is Seneca. Others hold that there are three. For this reason, a benefit passing its course from hand to hand returns nevertheless back to the giver. The beauty of the whole is destroyed if the course is anywhere broken. And it has most beauty if it is continuous and maintains an uninterrupted succession. Finally, though this, this idea that you would never, ever break the cycle is mentioned again by Cicero, saying we have no laws against such a break, because it is unimaginable. So, again, this is grace being given to people who know what it is to have nothing, deserve worse than nothing, and have received the greatest honor that they could have imagined. These are people that know how awful it would be to ever break the cycle of grace. I think for us, that's worth for us a a bit of introspection of saying, well, what aspect of that... Might, might be lacking even for me as I consider this. Let me let me give an example of how the Philippians and the Macedonians ended up being such a such a great example of, of grace. Uh, but by the way, this is a you know, kind of a fresco uh, that, that shows it as well here. The first giving of grace is the free gift given as you look at this depiction of the three graces. Thanksgiving for the gift, just to remind us of what I'm talking about. And then the generosity continues and the cycle only becomes deeper, more beautiful, and more bonding for all of human society. Now let's look at it in a a, uh, biblical example. Not some random biblical example. Let's look at a biblical example in Philippi, in Macedonia. And, And this biblical example is taken from a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians because they're all trying to do something to encourage the church in Judea. Now, the churches in Judea are destitute. They they need the help uh, that, that God wants to provide. But he says to the church in Corinth, be like the churches in Macedonia. Be like the churches in Philippi. And, and his bottom line to the long argument that he lays out in chapters 8 and 9 is you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity Will result in thanksgiving to God. Do you see that? The grace given, you are enriched in every way. You then will be a thanksgiving to God, and then you in turn are generous on every occasion. As a matter of fact, if we if we looked at phrases throughout Second Corinthians eight and nine, uh, there, there's one in particular for it says. This given of look, look at how it's described. I'm going to read from Second uh, Corinthians eight verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's pretty deep, right? This is no small gift. This is as though your family has a child in need of a liver, right? and, and this is not just simply someone giving you the liver that just out of the blue decides to bestow this upon you. They're a match and they can give it to you, but you wouldn't be able to afford the operation. And so that family decides, because you don't have the means, that they're going to sell everything they have. Their house, cash out their retirement that they've been building on now for 23 years. They're going to sell all of that, impoverish themselves, so that they can pay for this liver transplant, which, by the way, comes from their own son to your own son, for the rest of their lives, they will live in poverty so that your child is able to live and receive that liver. Now, if that happened to you, what do you think the relationship would be in your attitude towards that family? I mean, at, at every moment, you'd be like, hallelujah, praise God, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful. And every time you heard there was a way to encourage them, what do you think would be the first thing that you were excited to do upon hearing that? I can't even that is a metaphor that falls short of Jesus impoverishing himself so that we might become rich. Later on, it says that this this gift results in an overflowing of thanksgiving to God. Our generosity will result in overflowing thanksgiving to God. And then, uh, early on, it welled up in rich generosity. It says in verse uh, 1, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace... That God has given to the Macedonian churches in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy—that's their their thanksgiving—and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's just verses one and two. Do you see the cycle again there? Yeah. Right. The gift giving, the grace of God given to the Macedonian churches, the uh, attitude of gratitude, their overflowing joy. And how did they have a reciprocal, proportional, obligatory response? Despite their own poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, for I tell you that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, and they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to this work that was given there. When we can start to get this, then we're going to see no smallness in our Christianity. Because we'll get it the way that they got it. We'll realize that that it required so much for our child to live. It required so much for, for us to be able to have this citizenship, to have this land. It required so much for us to have this hope for when Judgment Day comes. It required so very much. But unfortunately, we have some things that rail against that in our day and age and why we don't get it. I think there are three big reasons why. Number one, we overestimate our own goodness. Who we were before the grace of God came into our lives. we got to recognize that who we were was an absolute repulsive statement before a holy God. And if we were to appear before the judgment seat based on our own goodness, fiery lake that does not go out day and night forever and ever. And we and, and once before the judgment seat and we saw through objective eyes our life's work, we'd be like, yes, I get it. But it's because we overestimate our own goodness. But secondly, we now underestimate His goodness. Because it's your goodness now. We don't walk around realizing that we have the righteousness of Jesus. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the steadfast, rock-solid, etched-in-stone hope that is life-transforming, joy-injecting, anxiety-abolishing that informs our walk every single day. But here's the worst of them all. Entitlement. What destroys... A community's appreciation of grace, the worst, I mean everybody hates entitlement, but do we really take the time to expose our own entitlements? I want to honor God with everything that I see with my eyes, but yet do I feel like I'm entitled to have internet service? Even though that might actually, be, well why do I feel like I'm entitled to internet service? It undermines, in very many cases, our response. Our obligatory, reciprocal, proportional response. But yet entitlement seeps in. It seeps in and what keeps us from having an unfettered response of welled-up generosity, bringing it all back, to be able to honor Jesus for what he's done for us. But also, in entitlement, we could also think that, well, did I really need so much? Was I really so bad? No. A lot of a lot of our self-esteem culture has propped us up unnecessarily and also made us ill-equipped to realize that we are nothing much more a smudge of sewage in a divine perspective but yet despite being that God trains his love upon us unrelentingly trains his love upon us to absolutely transform and renew and deliver us Praise God. But if we don't think that we deserved so much and needed so much, we'll never be moved. I love that Paul, the thing that I think informs his walk, that he did more than all the others. Why? Because he says, I was the worst of all sinners. And so for our final charge here to get grace, and this is our final charge, get grace, I want to encourage you to look back over those three things. I love this psalm. What shall I give back to the Lord for all his gifts to me? Something keeps us from having that as the, the thing that launches us in every day. And and I think it is that we don't appreciate what sewage we were, what beauty we are, what a gift was given, how much it cost, how true it is, what expectations are built in a community of grace, and also what entitlements may have undermined it. Look at your before picture. Look at your after picture, look at your entitlements. Keep at it until you have this same sentiment as the psalmist. What can I do to the Lord for all that he's done for me? Make this the focus of your conversations, of your discipleship, of your quiet times, of your prayers. Make this that so that there is nothing that would hinder the work of the grace of God in your life. Amen. We're dismissed.